So if you've been coming to this church for a long time, this it probably looks like a blast from the past. And that is because we have a very special guest speaker. We're doing this series on Nehemiah right now. We're in the middle of this series called Leading the Way. And one of the neat things we've been able to do as a, as a church here is to involve a lot of different leaders who are a part of or have been a part of our church. So that's included guys like John Richardson, who is one of our pastors here, or Kevin Crosley, who's a pastor here. But it also has allowed us to bring back our former senior pastors here as well. And that is something incredibly unique. I, I hope that you can appreciate how amazing it is that as a church, we can have all of the senior pastors of this church be involved in one series together. That stuff just doesn't happen in churches, and it's so cool that we can do this. I am beyond thrilled. So this week, we are going to hear from the first senior pastor of First Free Church. Next week, we will hear from the second senior pastor of First Free Church, and then the week after that will be the third senior pastor of First Free Church, which is me. And so I, I just could not be more excited excited to have this opportunity. I got to hear this message once already. It was fantastic. I know that you will be blessed. You will learn a lot. There's some great practical application to take away from this. Mike Andrus was the first senior pastor of First Free Church. He's going to join us now. tell you a little bit about him in case you don't already know. He was the senior pastor here for almost 20 years. He now serves as the pastor to senior adults in Wichita, Kansas at First Evangelical Free Church, kind of similar to ours. So we're glad to have you, Mike. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I really appreciate, Adam, your invitation to be here today. And it's so good to see many old friends and to make some new friends. I really appreciate them retrieving this security blanket for me out of the chapel and in gratitude I decided to ditch the tie which shows you that even old geezers can keep up with the times. I couldn't do the Levi's thing though, sorry. I, I wear Levi's six days a week on my farm and Sunday's the only day I can dress up. So I did listen to all the messages on Nehemiah online and I heard two weeks ago when John Richardson said you were turning on the Wayback Machine. And um, that's really pretty true. It's been over 15 years since we returned to Wichita. I anticipate this will be my last uh, opportunity to preach here. Not opportunity, I shouldn't say. Adam certainly didn't tell me it was the last time. I'm saying it's the last time because I turned 75 last month. And uh, I just uh, think that's about the time for me. I hope you don't conclude that I waited too long. <laughs> now, if, if the candidates for president who are my age would follow suit on both sides of the aisle, we might all be better off. <laughs> I bring you greetings from my family. Jan is with me this morning, and uh, she's been a wonderful partner for almost 55 years now. And uh, our... I have a photo of our family I want to show you, uh, Eddie and Cindy and their four children, and Andy and Brooke and their three. We're on a hayride at our farm uh, last uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, Eddie and Cindy's, uh, ha ha they have two in college and two in high school, and Andy's are five, seven, and nine, 
they live in Wichita with us, so we get to see them a lot. Everyone's in good health, for which we are very grateful. And my mother is still with us. She'll be 101 soon. The text I have been asked to preach today is Nehemiah 6 and 7. It's all about intimidation, antagonism, and a long list of unpronounceable names. It's probably not what I would choose for a swan song, but friends, it is scripture. And I believe strongly that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So let's see what God has to teach us through this, his holy word, this morning. Years ago, there was a stunning news article about 15-year-old Kip Kinkle of Springfield, Oregon, who killed both his parents, then went to school and killed two of his classmates and wounding 22 others. Uh, this four-page headline was in the Post-Dispatch at the time, and it says, Evil exists, experts say, of school shootings. As if he had just made a startling discovery that he could hardly believe himself, Dr. Sean Johnston, of the uh, forensic psychologist on the left coast, said about uh, this situation, I do believe there is a small percentage of people who are determined to be bad, who enjoy doing bad things. And he concludes his brilliant analysis with this statement, I guess the bottom line for me is that evil exists. Hello, <laughs> 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote a description of humanity that Dr. Johnson and most of the academics like him have ignored completely, as well as our whole humanistic, relativistic society. Paul wrote, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, theologians have a term for this view of human nature. It's called the doctrine of total depravity. Some people misunderstand it. It doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they could be, nor does it mean that people can't do positive things for one another. What it does mean is that there is no spiritual good innate in any of us, and that sin impacts every aspect of our lives, our intellect, our emotions, and our will. It also means we shouldn't be shocked when people do unconscionable things. Even religious people can be obnoxious and hateful and abusive. In fact, most of the terrorism that we see in our world today is religiously motivated. Kenneth Haug is a Lutheran pastor right here in St. Louis who started the worldwide Stephen Ministries that many of you may be familiar with. Kenneth wrote a book called Antagonists in the Church. The subheading is how to identify and deal with destructive conflict. The thesis of his book is that there are antagonists in the church who seek to undermine the work of the church and the work of God's servants. And the sooner we recognize this and come to grips with it and learn how to deal with it, the sooner we'll be able to protect the church and maintain its health. But I might add this is certainly not true just in the church. I would suspect that many of you have an antagonist at work or at school 
or in the neighborhood. Maybe you're even sitting next to an antagonist. My hope is that by examining Nehemiah's response to his antagonists, we will learn how to biblically deal with the antagonists in our lives. In case you haven't been here for the whole Nehemiah series, let me very briefly set the stage. The Jewish people had been in dire straits for about 140 years, ever since the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar wiped Jerusalem off the map in 586 B.C. For some 70 years, they were in captivity to Babylon, and then Cyrus the Persian defeated Babylon and allowed many of the Jews to go back to their homeland and rebuild their temple. That temple was a sorry excuse for Solomon's temple, which is probably the most expensive building ever in the world. Some of the old people who remembered Solomon's temple cried when they saw the new temple, but at least it was a place for them to worship and to establish community. Surrounded by enemies and plagued by internal strife, they barely survived over the next several generations. But then in 445 BC, God raised up a man named Nehemiah, a Jewish exile and cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the Persian emperor. God moved in the heart of this king to allow Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls so that the people could enjoy peace and security once again. Now, an archaeologist friend of mine recently dug up a manuscript that purports to be a speech that Nehemiah gave to the people. I can't vouch 100% for what he says. Some of you will remember he got a few things wrong years ago. But I want to translate this manuscript direct from the Hebrew and allow you to make up your minds. You have to read from right to left. And it says, and Nehemiah said, if you don't have borders, you don't have a country. I'm going to build a great big beautiful wall and the Samaritans are going to pay for it. <laughs> and then a little further down it says, and his enemies said, it's too expensive, it won't work, it's medieval. That's kind of an anachronism, isn't it? It's medieval and it's immoral. And one kind of strange guy said, let's tear down even the walls that have remained. Yeah, you can laugh. Now, last week, Kevin did a really cute bumper video. It didn't go quite this far, you know. <laughs> Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. <laughs> Adam, you have to be back here next week. I don't. I apologize. <laughs> Sometimes it helps to laugh about our political situation or we'd be crying all the time. Amen? Amen. Okay. By the way, Kevin, that sermon last week was fantastic. How a guy can come out of the business world and preach like that makes me feel like I spent too many years in seminary. <laughs> they say it takes a long time to get over cemetery. I mean seminary. <laughs> but Adam, your preaching team is working well. You should be proud of them. Now the heading in my Bible in chapter 6, which is my first chapter today, says further opposition to the rebuilding. That's referring back to chapter 4 where John Richardson told you about the previous opposition that had been going on. But this is, this is a little bit misleading. This is not just more of the same. This is opposition at a whole new level. 
As we read Nehemiah 6, I want you to watch for similar phrases that appear multiple times in these first 16 verses, like scheming to harm, trying to frighten, hired to intimidate. I'm going to read from the NIV. It's on page 345 of your Pew Bible. Next week, Bill Jones will be preaching chapter 8, where when Ezra gets up to read God's word, all the people stand intuitively. I think it's a good practice. I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word in Ezra, excuse me, in Nehemiah 6, 1 to 16. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you say what you are saying is happening, you are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me, so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. This, friends, is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want us to consider chapter 6 under three simple headings. The problem, the solution, and the result. 
The problem is hardcore antagonism. As Nehemiah approaches the completion of this amazing project, his enemies go from being mere troublemakers to hardcore antagonists. And our story reveals three tactics that antagonists typically use. First, the antagonist schemes to harm. That's in verse 2, by feigning friendship. Nehemiah's enemies send a message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. This is halfway between Samaria and Jerusalem. Reading between the lines, I sense that their message is something like this. Nehemiah, let's bury the hatchet. We have our differences, but we're reasonable people. We can find a way to preserve the interests of all concerned. Let's have a summit conference. Let's dialogue. Let's find a win-win. Well, sometimes dialogue is good, no doubt. But sometimes it's a trap. In this case, they are wanting to lure Nehemiah away from Jerusalem and assassinate him when he gets out of town, no doubt. You know, we don't want to become paranoid, but friends, when a proven enemy comes to us with an olive branch, we should at least be careful, if not suspicious. A second tactic the antagonist uses is he tries to frighten, that's mentioned in verse 9, by employing leaks, anonymous sources, and distortions of the truth. After four unsuccessful attempts to, to distract Nehemiah from his mission, Sanballat, his chief enemy, tries for a fifth time by sending his own personal aid with a letter to Nehemiah. And this letter is unsealed. That may seem insignificant, but it is not at all. In ancient times, when you were going to send a letter to somebody, you would roll it up like a scroll, you'd put wax hot wax on the outside, put your seal there, so that when the person received it, they would know it had not been tampered with. By leaving it purposely unsealed, Sanballat is inviting others to read it along the way. He wants it leaked because it's full of slander about Nehemiah. And he's clever enough to know that even if the scurrilous charges in this letter are later proved to be untrue, you can't possibly retrieve all those rumors, and the result will be sufficient to impugn Nehemiah's motives, to cast aspersions on his integrity, and to undermine his influence. But not only does the antagonist employ leaks, he also uses unnamed sources, anonymous sources. You notice the first phrase in the letter? It is reported among the nations. No names are given. These are undeclared sources. One of the most common tactics of an antagonist is to say something like this. Many people have shared with me such and such, but they have asked me to keep their names confidential. Kenneth Haug writes in his book, when someone offers you a word of criticism and then adds, there are X number of other people who feel the same way. Chances are excellent that you are talking with an antagonist. These others may be phantoms of the antagonist's imagination, invented to validate his or her own feelings and to threaten you. Or they may be followers of the antagonist. 
Whether they exist or not is really immaterial because individuals who are not antagonistic don't need to talk about all the others who feel the same way. They simply express their own thoughts and feelings. You'll notice also that Sanballat tries to add gravitas to his report by mentioning that Geshem has validated it. Give me a break. Geshem is his partner in crime. He has no credibility. That's like CNN validating a report by saying they, MSNBC said it too. <laughs> or we want to be fair and balanced here. Maybe Sean Hannity verifies a report by saying that Laura Ingram also prepared it. At any rate, look also at the content of this letter. It contains severe distortions of the truth. It reports that Nehemiah wants to be the king, and he has hired prophets to proclaim him king. Not only that, the wall is just a prelude to this revolt against Artaxerxes. That's totally false. Artaxerxes is his sponsor and his benefactor. And Nehemiah is, has no intentions or ambitions to rebel against him. By the way, there's a kernel of truth in almost every lie. That's what makes it believable. In this case, there are prophets talking about a coming king in Judah, but they're talking about the Messiah, not about Nehemiah, who has no ambitions. He's not power-hungry. Third, the antagonist tries to intimidate by using holy means to achieve unholy ends. By the way, J.I. Packer calls these three tactics that we've looked at. The first one is political softball, the second one is political hardball, this one is real spiritual warfare. In verse 10 we find Shemaiah, a priest, appealing to Nehemiah to come and see him because he's a shut-in. He's either old or sick or maybe both. So Nehemiah goes to see him and the Shemaiah says, you got to go to the temple and we close the doors and protect you because there's a contract out on your life. Well, there's a contract out, all right. It's between Sanballat and Shemaiah. This traitorous priest has agreed to try to trap Nehemiah in the temple so that the fear that he shows will undermine the confidence of the people. When they see their leader cutting and running, the people also will cut and run. Nehemiah's enemies are using holy means, like the trusted counsel of a clergyman, and even the natural reaction of self-defense for an unholy end, that is, undermining Nehemiah and his ministry. By the way, in this willingness to do almost anything to achieve his ends, an antagonist is almost always motivated by personal gain. Shemaiah does it for money. Sanballat and Tobiah are interested in power. But other antagonists may do what they do because of things like jealousy, and loss of influence, injured feelings, pride. Often the antagonist is insecure and tries to build himself up or herself by putting others down. That's the opposite of what a servant leader like Nehemiah does. Have you seen any of these behaviors that are common to antagonists in your own relationships? 
insincere friendship, unnamed sources, distortions of the truth, even the use of holy means to achieve unholy ends? How about the spread of rumor by saying we need to pray for so-and-so and sharing all the juicy details? Perhaps more importantly, have you used any of these tactics in your own relationships? Well, hardcore antagonism is the problem here. What's the solution? I want to suggest to you that it is godly resistance. What does that entail? Well, Nehemiah shows us several actions that I think constitute godly resistance. First of all, he exercises discernment. When his enemies come to him and say, let's meet on the plains of Ono, Nehemiah says, oh no. Now why did he say that? Because he discerned that they were trying to trap him. When Shemaiah says, go to the temple, verse 12 explains why he refuses. I realized that God had not sent him. How did he know that? Discernment. Some people think of discernment as just a spiritual gift. You either have it or you don't have it. But I think there are plenty of scriptures that indicate that we gain discernment as we spend time with God in his word and in prayer. Um, the better we come to know God, the better we'll be able to discern between truth and falsehood. Just like the better... The federal agent knows the real $100 bill, the better he'll be able to pick out the counterfeit. Secondly, Nehemiah focuses on his mission with perseverance. He doesn't get involved in a verbal battle with his enemies. He simply declares his priorities. I am doing a great work. I don't have come time to come and meet with you. Sometimes an antagonist will try hard to draw us into battle, requesting endless meetings, or today more likely sending endless emails or texts. But it will take perseverance to simply say at such a time, I don't have time in my schedule and in my priorities to continue this discussion. Sanballat and Tobias send the same message Five times, but Nehemiah sticks to his decision. He knows there's a great difference between being available and becoming a puppet of people. Every strong, godly leader needs to know when to say no. Thirdly, he categorically denies the false charges. In verse 8, in response to the false charges in the leaked letter, Nehemiah simply says, nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. It's all a figment of your imagination. A number of years ago, a woman came up to me and, and told me she had been out of town for a couple weeks, and she was shocked to hear what the elders had done to a certain family while she was gone. I had a feeling I was going to be shocked too. So I asked her what she had heard, and she told me this story about how the elders had, had lied about a family, treated them despicably, and driven them out of the church. She had gotten this message from another lady. 
in strict confidence, of course. I told her, I assured her that nothing even remotely like what she reported had happened. I said, you go to several of the elders and you ask them the same question. And then you go back to your source and ask her to go to the elders and confirm our denial. Well, nobody ever came to the elders, so I assume it was all made up. But there's something even more important that Nehemiah does than to just deny the accusations. He prays. If you're using the NLT and several other versions, it says in the last phrase of verse 9, so I continued the work with even greater determination. But the Hebrew is more likely a prayer. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. That's a pretty short prayer, isn't it? I love Nehemiah's bullet prayers. He can shoot them off in a moment of crisis, and friends, that is so much better than shooting your mouth off or collapsing in a pile of anxiety. This is how Nehemiah handles his crisis. Finally, he leaves vengeance with God. Look at verse 14, where we have another prayer of Nehemiah's, but a very different kind of prayer. He says, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. When Nehemiah asks God to remember these characters, it's not because he's afraid God will forget them. He's asking God to deal with them. This is what is called an imprecatory prayer. There are a number of them in the Psalms. There's another one in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He's praying for God's righteous judgment on his enemies. Not only on the Samaritans, Sanballat and Tobiah, but even on the Jewish prophets who have been traitorous to him. He can't fight them alone, but he knows that any believer plus God is a majority. Friends, let me tell you, if you have an enemy, if you have an antagonist in your life who needs to be dealt with, let God do it. He's better at it than you are, and he will take care of it. I'll never forget a sermon that Dr. Stephen Olford gave at our church in Wichita some 40 years ago when I was there the first time. Olford was the pastor, longtime pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. And in the early 70s or late 60s, I'm not sure which, he had led the church to integrate. Three key leaders in the church had fought him tooth and nail. Instead of getting into a battle with them, he asked God to take care of the situation. In three months, they were all three dead. That's not what Olford had in mind. He mourned them. But friends, it put the fear of God in that church, believe me. Had he attacked them personally, he probably would have split the church and ended up being forced out. What does this level of opposition to Nehemiah tell us about leadership? One thing it communicates to me is that the higher one's exposure and the greater one's influence, the harder Satan will try to bring a leader down. 
J.I. Packer has written very perceptively, leaders have something of a Pied Piper quality. They are thought of as wise and far-seeing, and people trust their judgment and follow in their steps. So if they can be allured into bypaths and blind alleys, they will take many with them, and Satan will score heavily. Also, leaders live in something of a goldfish bowl so that when leadership scandals break out, the damage and discouragement will be large-scale and widespread. Boy, have we seen that in the evangelical community in recent years. Four of the ten largest and most effective ministries in the United States have taken a huge hit, mainly because of the spiritual arrogance of their leaders. Other issues, of course, have risen too. Do you realize that when the Apostle Paul wrote to his young pastors, Timothy and Titus, he talked very little about the need for pastoral skills. He talked a lot about humility and kindness and perseverance and wisdom and integrity, the kinds of qualities that Nehemiah has exhibited in his life, particularly last week in chapter 5. Well, we've seen the problem, hardcore antagonism. We've seen the solution, godly resistance. What is the result? The mission is completed. Verse 15, so the wall was completed in 52 days. Friends, this is an amazing accomplishment. Perhaps one of the greatest in history. By the way, the walls of Jerusalem are incredible to behold. Some of you were right there within the last week. Um, those walls were primarily built by the Turks, but some of the foundation stones were laid by Nehemiah, and some of the real low stones were even laid in Solomon's day. It gives you a picture of the amazing accomplishment that these people did in 52 days. Now, many leaders would not be satisfied if they didn't get credit for something this big. But you'll notice that Nehemiah, once again, explicitly acknowledges, as he did earlier in the book, that his success is a God thing. Verse 16, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. And friends, when our enemies see that our dependence on God is unshakable and our commitment to the task he has called us to is unwavering, then the fear they are trying to foist on us will come back on their own heads. They will lose their self-confidence as well. There's nothing like the continued blessing of God to silence one's critics. But then, at the end of our chapter, we discover something surprising and, frankly, disappointing. The opposition doesn't stop. Nehemiah gets no relief. In verses 17 to 19, which we didn't read earlier, we find that some of the nobles of Judah happened to be related to Sanballat and Tobiah because of intermarriage. And they kept telling Nehemiah 
what a good guy Tobiah was. And they kept leaking Nehemiah's words to Tobiah. And then Tobiah would send more letters to Nehemiah to intimidate him. And all this is after Nehemiah has held up with great fortitude against this opposition and finished the task. Don't you think he deserves a little rest? Well, friends, the Bible never sugarcoats anything. It never tells you, do these three things and you'll live happily ever after. It tells us how to respond to destructive conflict, but it never suggests that conflict will vanish. When God calls us, what God calls us to is perseverance in right contact. Right conduct, excuse me. So Nehemiah continues to provide spiritual and physical protection for those in his care. In the first three verses of chapter 7, we find that Nehemiah makes godly appointments uh, over the people. Gatekeepers, singers, Levites, and over the whole city he appoints a man named Hanani, of whom it says in verse 2, he was a man of integrity who feared God more than most men do. I love that statement. That's an epitaph that's worth having on your gravestone. A man of integrity who feared God more than most men do. Now that's the story through verse 3 of chapter 7. But Adam assigned me all of chapter, chapter 6, all of chapter 7 too. So you don't mind if I keep going, do you? Actually, chapter 7 is largely a list of names. And it's an almost verbatim repeat of Ezra chapter 2. I call it a postscript on the importance of names to God. And I will be brief. You'll be glad to know I'm not going to read this chapter this morning. Do you ever think about the fact that after you die, and after your children and grandchildren are gone, probably less than a century for most of us here today, almost no one will remember your name. Unless you're rich enough to have your name on some big building, or strong enough athlete to be in one of the sports halls of fame, or you've been bad enough to be on the FBI most wanted list. Otherwise, people won't remember your name. I think this chapter is here to tell us God remembers names. He does. Uh, do you have any idea how many different names there are in the Bible? I looked it up on Google. There are 3,237 names in the Bible. Most of them are mentioned only once. Many are unpronounceable to us. Many represent people we know nothing about except their name. Why does God take up precious space in his book to give us these names? Because names are important to people and people are important to God. Your name may be the most important thing about you. During my first stint as pastor in Wichita, we had a lady who lost her brother in Vietnam. And um, several years later, I was in Washington, D.C., and I visited the Vietnam Memorial. And that um, massive granite wall with 58,318 names 
They have a directory there. You can look up a person's name and find that name on the wall. And I took a piece of paper and did a pencil etching of her brother's name. And I took it back to her. She was so grateful to see that her brother's name had been preserved for posterity. But I'll tell you something more amazing than that. Can you imagine not just having your name preserved for 50 years on a granite slab, but to have your name written in a book, the best-selling book of all history for 2,000 years. If your name was Mispareth, who's found in verse 7, or Hodaviah in verse 43, or Pokareth Hatsabayim, that's his name, verse 59, wouldn't you feel honored about that? This chapter tells us that God cares about people. He cares about little people, not just successful people, not just beautiful people. Many of the people listed here are servants. They're singers. They're gatekeepers. God cares about people that nobody else cares about. Oh, there's so much more in this chapter, believe me. But I must conclude by sharing with you that God has another list of names. It's more important than this one in Nehemiah 7. It has names from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. It's the Lamb's Book of Life. And uh, it contains the name of every person who has put their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 72 disciples. These weren't apostles. These were ordinary people like you and me. And he said, go out and heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God. And they came back, and they were full of joy. They said, Lord, this is heady stuff. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus put the kibosh on their enthusiasm. Here's what he said. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's incredibly more significant. Now, the Lamb's Book of Life has not been published. We don't know the names that are in that. We're going to be surprised at some of the names in that book, friends. We're going to be surprised at some of the names that are missing as well. What God has revealed is the responsibility of each individual to repent of his sin and to believe the gospel. That's how names are entered. Not one of us deserve to have our name in the Lamb's book of life. We all deserve eternal condemnation. Friends, we are all antagonists to God in our words and deeds and imaginations. If a person does not repent and believe the gospel, his name will not be there and he has only himself to blame. If you do believe the gospel and your name is there, you have only God to praise. Let's pray. Father, Nehemiah succeeded in building the wall of Jerusalem and restoring the national dignity of a despised people because he had an unshakable conviction 
And what he was doing was what you wanted him to do. His confidence in you released him from being a success and needing to please everybody, keep everybody happy. Instead, his confidence in you enabled him to cope with the antagonists in his life and to inspire others to give their best to you. May our confidence likewise always be in you. And thank you, Father, that you know my name and the names of your people in this church. You've written them in your book, and you've promised never to erase them. In the strong and powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen.